Solomon said there was a time and a place for everything, Shirley had not encountered the travails of junior high. But during those formative years, there was truly a time for all things. A time to dance, a time to sing, a time to date, and yes, even a time to fight. Relive these pivotal triumphs and pitfalls with Pat McCarthy as he recalls a series of first-time experiences within the walls of Lynn Haven Junior High School. First Dance, written by Pat McCarthy, narrated by Bo Pritchard. First Dance. In seventh grade, there are a few things to look forward to. Sporting events, lunch, and dances. I have to admit I didn't like much else. At 13, nothing feels quite right. And whoever thought it was a good idea for teenage boys to take open showers together needs a lobotomy. It's bad enough that our hormones are practicing taekwondo in every fiber of our being, but to have to parade around naked in front of other boys who look like they're ready for American gladiators is just plain cruel. Such is junior high school, a place where awkwardness is king, and fitting in is not only important, it's downright life or death. But among all the gracelessness, there was one thing that every boy looked forward to in junior high, and that was the first dance. It wasn't that we actually liked dancing or had any clue how to dance. It was simply an opportunity to meet girls in an environment without parents. I can remember my first dance like it was yesterday. There was so much to do before attending a dance. Obviously, personal hygiene was on the top of the list. No 13-year-old boy would be caught dead attending a dance without taking a shower and applying enough deodorant spray to asphyxiate a small African village. Smelling nice was imperative. If you were caught with even a hint of B.O. around girls, you could be ridiculed for one, two, maybe three years. Heck, you might even get a nickname that would carry on to the 20-year high school reunion. It just wouldn't worth the risk. Some boys, especially those who had older brothers, would apply some borrowed musk, just in case the deodorant somehow failed. This was a savvy move that you mainly learned as an upperclassman, well-versed in the ways of the world and women. One added delight for me was shaving. Some unfortunate boys like myself had facial hair in the third grade. Let me just add that looking like Grizzly Adams in elementary school was a lot to live down. After showering and shaving, for the lucky few, it was time to look in the mirror for 30 minutes and evaluate the acne status. Of course, on dance night, you could expect to get that one lone pimple the size of a third eye or a small ram's horn poking out of your forehead. If you were lucky and the pimple was a little smaller than Mount Vesuvius, you could secretly apply some of your mom's concealer. Of course, this was a pretty risky move and would provide another opportunity for a nickname that might only last through your junior year in college. A close friend of mine, Revlon Richards, learned this lesson the hard way. Getting to the dance was always a trial. My parents, in their sleek, light blue Buick station wagon, would corral as many of us as they could. 
The boat on wheels only logistically fit seven, which included the pop-up seat in the back facing the opposite direction. Yes, there was extra space in the front seat, but no one dared sit beside mom or even worse, dad. It was bad enough that mom or sometimes dad had to drop you off, but to sit beside them was unthinkable. Even worse was having dad pick you up after the dance. There was nothing more painful than the awkward conversation about whom you danced with. Letting your father in on such information was strictly forbidden. Mascara Jenkins had that conversation with his dad, and unfortunately no one ever saw him again. Could have sworn I saw Mascara years later on Dr. Phil. The topic was something like reliving childhood nightmares, learning to forgive your father. On a final note about traveling to the dance, I'm thankful that my parents didn't smoke. The combination of Old Spice, Right Guard, and Jovan Nightmusk might have torched the poor blue boat. Years later, I now understand why my parents would drive with the windows down in the middle of November. There comes a time in every young boy's life when he discovers girls. He realizes that they are more important than bad horror movies, fast food, and even video games. And although for some this realization happens much earlier than 7th grade, For many, it happens the night of that first dance. Arriving in the blue streak, it was difficult to make a cool arrival, so we generally had my parents drop us off a quarter of a mile from the entrance. Obviously, not many 7th graders were driving their own vehicles. Of course, Billy the Brain Curtis was the exception. He had been driving for over a year and had still not completed 7th grade English. In retrospect, it must have been hard holding down a full-time job and attending junior high, but the brain seemed to enjoy being able to drive himself and his sixth-grade girlfriend to the dance. Thankfully, my parents were good sports about the long-distance drop-off. It may have seemed silly to them, but to me, the fear of having my parents strike up a conversation with a chaperone or anyone else at the dance was not worth the risk. After stealthily appearing from a mysterious transport, My friends and I walked toward the school. We could hear the faint sounds of journey emanating from the cafeteria that had magically been transformed into a dance hall. As I walked through the doors, it was apparent that I had walked into a war, and the battle lines had been clearly drawn. On the right were the girls, dressed to impress in lip gloss, Jordache jeans, and sweaters with collared shirts encased in a sweet cloud of love's baby soft. On the left were the guys in Levi's and Izod, smelling like a carnival of cheap cologne and sweat. After chatting with Booger Mitchell and Poops Manley about the lame music at the dance, it was time to take the walk. It was necessary early on to walk the perimeter of the facility several times in order to ease the nerves. It was also important to scope out the prospects, which at the age of 13 were pretty dismal. Walking out of the dark cafeteria into the lighted hallway was apparent that some students did not see nor care for the ground rules of the conflict. Amy Dallop, a 7th grader, crossed the invisible line early as she attempted to remove Mark Jackson's tonsils in a kiss that left many teenage boys wounded. Several students stood by in either amazement or just to make sure that the paramedics were not necessary. 
Hurls McQueen unfortunately forgot his inhaler and was carried out on a stretcher. After walking around the perimeter for a good 45 minutes, the battle cry was sounded. The opening chords of Who's Crying Now blasted through the speakers. The first slow dance had begun. There was a palpable nervousness that filled the cafeteria-turned-dance hall. On the right, eager eyes could be seen by every 7th grade girl in attendance. Of course, there were also some eager-eyed 8th graders. And finally, a few jaded but still furtively hopeful ninth graders. Now, as I stood staring across the floor at the other side with Steve Perry singing loudly in my ear, I had to admit to myself that there were a few babes that were clearly out of my league. Although it was true that magical things happened at dances where guys from the C group danced with girls from the A group, for the most part, they were simply rumors passed around the locker room. Knowing your place in junior high school was crucial for survival. Asking someone like Rachel Atkinson or Missy Torgy to dance was social suicide. So as I perused my possibilities as if I were making the most important decision of my 13-year-old life, I became paralyzed with fear. What if she said no? And heaven forbid, what if I asked someone in the D group and she said no? As I stood and watched the bodies awkwardly converge onto the floor, I found my way quickly to the bathroom to find solace among the other frightened soldiers. She wants me, John Stevens offered the dejected cadets. She's been staring at me all night. I'm just waiting for a better song. We all knew that the song would never come. It was the oldest trick in the book. John was in the bathroom like the rest of us because he was scared out of his gourd. He knew that time was running out. Hey guys, the slow dance is over, Mark Newsom announced from his position near the door. It was safe to come out now. The process of hiding each time a slow song came on was repeated throughout the night. The embarrassment of being caught staring at the other lucky couples on the dance floor while you painfully held up the wall was too much for most 7th graders. As I made my way to the bathroom for the third time of the night, I was stopped by an older neighborhood friend, Dennis Kinney. He could tell that I was having a tough time of it, so he kindly stepped in with some help. Dennis, a ninth grader, had made an arrangement with an 8th grader to dance with me. And it just so happened that the 8th grader was none other than Lori Butler. Lori Butler. Queen of the A group, Lori Butler. Lori Butler, the girl that 7th grade boys avoided in the hallway, afraid that they might be caught staring or worse, drooling Lori Butler. Dennis simply introduced me to Lori. Seeing my obvious distress, Dennis helped guide my arms around her waist. And shockingly, she did not hit me, but simply smiled. Up until this point, I was completely unaware of the music that was accompanying this perfect moment. Then, as if in a dream, I heard the soulful voices of Diana and Lionel in perfect harmony. My first love, your every breath that I take. Your every step I make 
As I began to look around the dance floor, I could see several boys from the A group nodding in both awe and admiration. Flies were gathering the mouths of my friends as they stood gaping in utter amazement. I could tell that my best friend, Bo Pritchard, wanted to come over and shake my hand during the dance itself, but he was already occupied in his first dance as well, one that he had arranged on his own. Although my experience was somewhat rigged, I was thankful that Bo and I were sharing this moment together. After a short while, I noticed Dennis signaling from the sidelines. He was gesturing that I should lower my hands from Lori's waist to her hips. Although I was still in a mild state of shock, I managed to make the move and Dennis seemed to be very pleased. The whole moment was somewhat surreal. I could have died that night and lived a complete existence, I thought as the final bars of endless love resounded through the gym. I thanked Lori and walked back to my friends, feeling like John Glenn on his arrival back to Earth. Listen, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. To this day, I'm not sure if any money had been exchanged, but what Dennis did for me that night was one of the kindest gestures I could have ever received. As the evening came to a close and the DJ announced the final slow dance, it was a mad frenzy to find someone to dance with. Leaving without having danced with a girl was like reaching the summit of the mountain and not being able to look at the view. Of course, that was the positive spin. For most, it was the ultimate feeling of rejection. Going to a dance without dancing was setting yourself up for weeks of ridicule and mockery. No chance Williams had been in this situation so many times that he looked like he was having a small seizure on the middle of the dance floor, twisting and turning, trying to catch the eye of a possible victim. Of course, the girls knew what was going on, and most of them turned their heads to save him from even more embarrassment. I, in my new sense of bravado, decided to ask Lori for one last dance. By the look on her face, it was apparent before I even opened my mouth that my luck had run its course. Dejected, I walked back to my compadres. Pat, she couldn't handle more than one dance with you. She might just fall in love. My best friend's words brought a smile to my face. Just then, I felt a tap on my shoulder. I turned around to see Karen Blessing a cute 7th grader staring up into my eyes. Would you dance with me? She asked. Later, as I sat silently between my father and younger sister on the ride home, there was nothing that could wipe the grin off my face. You've been listening to Episode 3 First Dance, from the series First, written by Pat McCarthy and narrated by Bo Pritchard. This has been a Two Brothers Nostalgia production, copyright 2016. Join us soon for our next episode, First Date.